God's anointed king does battle for God's honor, God wins. When me and my two younger brothers were growing up, sometimes we would make different Bible stories into little skits. Now you could probably guess which Bible stories would lend themselves well to different skits. We had a, a version of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, like we get to like hit each other and put somebody on a donkey. That's pretty fun. But one of our favorites has got to be David and Goliath, right? We'd have my youngest brother act as David. He's seven years younger than me, so maybe he was three or four years old. We didn't really give him any lines. He had a cloth hat on. I think we even had a toy sling. I would be a cowardly King Saul. And my dad would make an appearance with our toy double-sided Darth Maul lightsaber. And my dad was maybe two or three times taller than my youngest brother, so the height difference worked pretty well, we thought. But whether or not you grew up with the story of David and Goliath, it may be one of the very first Bible stories that you've become familiar with. I mean, it's a great story, right? And all sorts of people like to apply inspiration from the story of David and Goliath to their own lives. From conservative Christian homeschool culture and veggie tales singing that little guys can do big things too, to modern reinterpretations of David and Goliath in which maybe David is not so weak as he may seem. There was even a whole book written by author Malcolm Gladwell highlighting the hidden strengths of the underdog. Perhaps you've heard some stories referred to as David and Goliath stories. Oh, that's a great David and Goliath story. Stories where the underdog wins. Stories about fighting giants in your life with the Rocky theme song playing in the background. But friends, if we only think of the story of David and Goliath as the classic underdog story, then I'm afraid we're really missing the main reason why the story of David and Goliath should give us courage. So let's open our Bibles and take a closer look. 1 Samuel chapter 17. So please turn to 1 Samuel 17. It's also printed in your bulletins. Back in the beginning of June, we started this sermon series through 1 Samuel. Perhaps some of you may have been wondering when we would get to the story of David and Goliath, and here we are. A few weeks ago, you heard 
1 Samuel 16 preached, in which Samuel anointed David as king. In that passage, we were reminded that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The transition in 1 Samuel has been made from focusing on the kingship of Saul to the anointed king, David. Saul's still around. Saul still sits on the throne. But the focus has shifted. We also know from the previous chapter that God is with David. But God has left Saul. So 1 Samuel 17. Before we read this passage, I'd like to introduce a main point to help us consider what this passage is teaching us. And that's simply this. When God's anointed king does battle for God's honor, God wins. When God's anointed king does battle for God's honor, God wins. Say it one more time. When God's anointed king does battle for God's honor, God wins. We'll walk through this story in four scenes, kind of like the scenes of a movie. Scene one, a giant's boast, verses 1 to 11. Scene two, a boy's trust, verses 12 to 40. Scene three, the Lord's battle, verses 41 to 47. And scene four, a kingly victory, verses 48 to 58. So let's begin with scene one, a giant's boast. A giant's boast. Please look with me at 1 Samuel 17 from verse 1, and we'll read until verse 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Azekah in Ephesdemim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
So let's take in this scene. Here are the Philistines on one mountain, the Israelites on the other mountain, and there's a valley in between. And out of the Philistine camp come this, comes this very impressive figure. Now, we thought Saul was tall, but look at Goliath. It's hard to say exactly how tall six cubits and a span is. A cubit was a measurement based on someone's arm from like their elbow to their middle finger. So it depends on whose arm is doing the measuring. Sometimes the, the cubit may have had to do with, uh, with the king's arm being the measurement. But estimates would have Goliath perhaps even as tall as nine feet tall. So if we convert that, I mean, so you thought Mimiba was tall. We're talking like Mimiba. Anyways, this isn't the first time we have met giants in the Bible. You may remember how the Israelites, except for Joshua and Caleb, were afraid of the giants who lived in the Promised Land. Have the Israelites forgotten how God delivered them from those giants? A few more comments on Goliath's armor. It would have been made of several hundred bronze plates that resembled fish scales. The coat of mail weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. So that's around 125 pounds or 57 kilograms of armor. So if he's strong enough to wear that and still move around, that tells you something. The head of the spear that Goliath wielded would have weighed over 14 pounds, or 6.6 .6 kilograms. So imagine sticking like a weight, a 15-pound dumbbell on the end of a spear. How well could you throw that? The narrator's description of Goliath sets the stage for Goliath's challenge. Goliath calls Israelites servants of Saul. But Goliath fully expects them not to remain servants of Saul, but to be servants of the Philistines. This is meant to be a man-on-man -man battle that will, be, that will determine which nation is enslaved to which nation. And Goliath expects there to be no Israelite who could stand a chance against him. So he finishes his challenge with the boast, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Just from reading this section, we probably can relate to why Saul and the Israelites would be afraid. It doesn't appear that anyone in the Israelite camp would have a fighting chance against Goliath. But also remember, who should be volunteering to fight this giant? Isn't King Saul a head taller than everybody else? But no, Saul is scared. The Israelites had chosen a king to be like the nations and lead them into battle, but their king is cowering. And that's the end of this first scene. We're given a vivid picture 
of this warrior, a champion who defies Israel, who struck fear into the Israelite camp. But I do want to ask a question, and that is, should the Israelites be scared right now? Should the Israelites be shaking in their sandals? Have the Israelites forgotten how God saved Israel through Jonathan? Has Saul forgotten how God used him to strike down the Ammonites soon after he was anointed king? Have the Israelites forgotten how the Lord saved them from the Philistines while Samuel led as judge? We often see in scriptures how quickly the Israelites are to forget. And yet we may often be guilty of the same things. What might we be forgetting in situations that cause great fear in us? What might you be forgetting at times when you are scared or anxious? I'll leave those questions hanging. We'll come back to those questions. First, we should move on to the next scene. We've seen two, a boy's trust. A boy's trust. Let's look at verses 12 to 40. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper, and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the kings will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? 
For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. For David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the book and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. So we might not have seen much hope in verses 1 to 11. But now when verse 12, we're brought back to David and his family. We're reminded who David is. The youngest of the sons of Jesse. David has been going back and forth from serving in King Saul's court to continuing to take care of his father's sheep. Jesse gives some provisions to David for him to take to his older brothers. David brings what his father provides. He makes sure a responsible person is caring for the sheep, and he heads for the front lines. Even though the Israelites were in their own camp, they would run when they saw Goliath come out. And Goliath had been doing this morning and evening for 40 days. So David greets his brothers, he starts talking to them, and he's interrupted by Goliath's booming voice. Notice the contrast between what the Israelites say in verse 24 and what David says in verse 26 after hearing Goliath speak. The Israelites focus on the riches and honor that will be given to whoever defeats Goliath. David, on the other hand, is indignant. He asks, 
But who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David understands that when Goliath defies Israel, Goliath is defying the armies of the true God. David sees Goliath as uncircumcised, one who is not of God's covenant people. This is the same language that Jonathan used of the Philistines back in chapter 14. Both David and Jonathan were clear the distinction between those who were God's people and those who were not. But the rest of the Israelites in the camp are, are dreaming of worldly riches and honor. But then they just look at Goliath and they think, well, if there's a 100% chance I die when I fight this guy, then riches and honor are not going to do me any good. But David sees Goliath not as a champion, but as a proud challenger. David's not looking at Goliath's height, his armor, his weapons. David sees someone who would dare to oppose God. And then we hear from David's oldest brother, Eliab. Eliab jumps to the worst conclusions about his youngest brother. He speaks of the evil that he sees in David's heart. It's ironic hearing Eliab speak this way because in the previous chapter, we heard that only God knows what's in a person's heart and God knows what's in Eliab's heart. So what an irony it is that Eliab would make this false accusation. Eliab thinks of David as this little kid who has just come to see bloodshed. But David is wise beyond his years. News of David's questions and statements spread throughout the camp and made it all the way to the ears of Saul, and so Saul sent for him. Upon entering Saul's tent, David offers himself to go and fight the Philistines. Saul at first objects, saying that David is but a youth. Like, come on, David. You haven't been in a battle, have you? And Goliath has been fighting. He's been a warrior since he was your age. But Saul is just looking on outward appearances. He's not beginning with understanding the God that David worships. David's reply appeals to his own experience as a shepherd. As a good shepherd, David would risk his life for his father's sheep. If a lion or a bear came, David would strike the lion or bear and grab the sheep out of the predator's mouth. David says to Saul in verses 36 and 37, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Notice here the reasons that David trusts God for victory. 
This has to do with God's honor. God has defied the ar- Goliath has defied the armies of the living God. David simply trusts God that God does not want to be defied in this way. And Goliath's proud defiance needs to be brought down. David also trusts God, remembering God's faithfulness to him in the past. God has saved David before from wild animals. And picturing Goliath just like a ferocious beast, David trusts that God can save him again. So Saul gives David a blessing. It's interesting that he, he says that God be with David. God, it's ironic. God is with David. God has left Saul. But Saul is still thinking in a very human way. Still thinking of fighting Goliath on Goliath's terms. So Saul tries to suit up David in his own armor. The armor doesn't fit very well. Saul might be a couple heads taller than David. David rejects wearing it. Instead, he simply takes the weapons of a shepherd. He already has his staff with him. He has a sling. He goes to grab five smooth stones. While Saul continues to think of this battle in human terms, David has already proclaimed trust in the living God. Notice that David does not appeal to his own skill. He doesn't tell Saul, oh, I, don't worry, I'm a, I'm a crack shot with a slingshot. And we tell Saul, the living God is being defied. We can't stand for that. And the living God will deliver me just like he has before. So I asked earlier, what might we be forgetting in situations in which we feel great fear? I imagine that we feel the most fear when we take God out of the picture. Like Saul, we we start just thinking the same way the rest of the world does. Summing up David's military experience versus Goliath's military experience. And uh uh-oh, things don't look good. But there are a couple good reminders here for us of why we can trust God in a situation in which maybe, quote-unquote, any normal person would be very afraid. First, we should remember that our God is the living God. God is not far away, distant, or silent. He is alive, and he is with us. It seems like pretty much everyone else in the Israelite camp had forgotten that their God is the living God. But David knows that Israel's God is alive. David sees the gods of the Philistines as dead and powerless. So brothers and sisters, let's remember that God is alive. He is watching. He cares. 
and he cares about his own honor. God cares about his, how his people live out their lives as a witness to who he is, as a reflection of who he is. Second, we also should remember God's salvation and faithfulness in our own lives. We can think of examples of this. David understands, he knows that it was God who saved him from the lion and the bear. We can also be reminded of how God has been faithful to us and to other brothers and sisters. This evening at prayer service, we have another opportunity to hear a testimony, to hear Alan's testimony. So what did God do in saving him? God did a supernatural work. God did something that, that can't simply be explained in human terms. So remember God's faithfulness. Now at this point, if this story were a movie, we would be panning out in verse 40. We would be watching as David leaves the Israelite camp and heads straight for Goliath. And so we come to scene three, the Lord's battle, the Lord's battle. So look with me starting in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So it's time to fight. But before the combat begins, probably even more important for us to see and understand and hear is this war of words that introduces this fight. This war of words will climax with David's faith-filled words. So Goliath, the champion, moves forward. As soon as he sees David, he feels disdain for David. Even more than Eliab looking down on his baby brother, Goliath looks down on this boy and he mocks David. David has his wooden staff. Goliath asks, am I a dog 
they come to me with sticks. Goliath is armed with a sword and a spear, and here's this little boy with a stick coming. But let's not also overlook the fact that it's here that Goliath curses David by his gods. Goliath is not simply using bad language. He's appealing to Dagon and other Philistine gods. That these gods would see to it that David is ushered quickly into whatever hell might be like in the Philistine imagination. Goliath is not only re representing the Philistines, God, Goliath is representing the gods of the Philistines. And Goliath is eager to offer up David's dead carcass to the birds and the beasts. But young David is not afraid of these curses or these threats or the sheer massiveness of this approaching giant. David lets Goliath and anyone who is in hearing distance know what's really going to happen in this battle. Goliath has mocked David and cursed David by his gods, but David's reply rings out that Goliath should prepare for judgment to come down on him. Goliath doesn't understand who he's really dealing with. And so David says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. David is indignant that Goliath would mock the true and living God of Israel. And David is simply representing God, waiting for judgment to fall on this proud giant. Goliath is fighting with the weapons of his world, of this world, but what can his weapons do fighting against an all-powerful God? And so David proclaims that Goliath is the one who's about to be dead meat. Goliath is the one whose head is about to be cut off. And not only Goliath, but the whole Philistine army is about to be defeated. And the Philistine carcasses are going to be fed to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the field. But why? Why would God do this? David's clear on this point as well. It's so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. The death of Goliath is meant to be a witness to the whole world who the true and living God is. The defeat of the Philistines is meant to be a display that when the Lord saves, he doesn't need a human sword or a human spear. He can save through whoever he wants to save through. David makes very clear that this battle is the Lord's battle. The story of David and Goliath is the story of God winning his battle for the glory of his name. And the glory of God's name is meant not only to be proclaimed in Israel, but throughout the whole world. So when we look at this, instead of reading the story of David and asking first, oh, what's your Goliath? Or where are your five smooth stones? Let's be asking ourselves, 
Are we willing to risk our lives for the glory of God? And for us in this room, perhaps a martyr's death would be hard to imagine. Perhaps we might romanticize dying for our faith. But before considering that, we could first be asking ourselves, are we willing to sacrifice for the glory of God? Are we willing to be obedient to God in situations that truly cause us to lose something? Perhaps we lose respect by doing evangelism. Perhaps we lose a job by saying no to a boss who wants us to be dishonest. Perhaps we lose opportunities for promotion because we want to keep taking Sundays off to gather with God's people. Jim Elliott was one of five missionaries who in the 1950s moved to live among the Alka Indians in Ecuador, share the gospel with them. This was a tribe that had no contact with the outside world. He and the other missionaries were killed in the process. Jim Elliot once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot's desire for God to be glorified among the Alka Indians did not save his earthly life. But with the sure hope of heaven, he and the other missionaries risked everything. So I think our heart for evangelism, our heart for missions, should be spurred on by the story of David and Goliath. Because here we're reminded that God is meant to be praised among the nations. The battle is the Lord's, and all glory will go to him in the end. That brings us to scene four, a kingly victory. Scene four, a kingly victory. When the, so look with me from verse 48, verse 48 until the end of the passage. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. 
so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistines, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down, from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So I wonder if by the end of David's speech, any of the Israelites had begun to be reminded of God's power and begun to hope again in God. And they didn't have long to wait to see how the battle would end. David unceremoniously kills Goliath with one stone sinking into Goliath's forehead. Goliath falls face down on the ground. David runs over and uses Goliath's own sword to finish Goliath off. Earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, you could recall that the God of Israel did something similar to Dagon in his own temple. The idol Dagon fell flat on his face, and the living God cut off Dagon's head. Goliath was similarly executed representing an already defeated false god. So Goliath was defeated and humiliated in the same way. So at this point, panic ensues in the Philistine camp. Perhaps they've forgotten that they're supposed to now be servants of the Israelites. They all run. And just as David said would happen there, was a massive defeat of the Philistines. The story ends with a, an interesting little scene in which Saul wants to confirm whose son David is. One may wonder why Saul doesn't already know this, since David is often coming into Saul's court. Perhaps Saul has forgotten, or he, he needs official confirmation. He's wondering where his wealth is going. He's wondering which family is meant to be exempt from taxes. So while worldly riches were not important to David, perhaps that's already what Saul is thinking. Going back to this idea of a, a kingly victory, the way that David defeats Goliath by trusting in the Lord is the way that an anointed king of Israel should act. This is the kind of man who Israel should want to have as their king, someone who would trust in the Lord. God is pleased when his king trusts him. So we don't want to miss in this story who, who David is, He's not 
simply a youth or a boy. He's also God's anointed king. And he's being used by God to save God's people. This is a story of a good shepherd king who does battle with the greatest enemy of God's people at that time and wins. This is a story that points ahead to a greater shepherd and a greater king. In this story, David gives us just a taste of what Jesus will be like. For both Christians and non-Christians in the room, this is what we need to remember. That we were all slaves to our sins. Even worse off than the Israelites being oppressed by the Philistines. And we needed a king to save us from our greatest enemies of sin and death and Satan. And God the Father anointed King Jesus. Perhaps Jesus looked weak after 40 days in the wilderness. Perhaps Satan felt very powerful when he went to tempt a frail Jesus. But it seems that Satan didn't understand who he was dealing with. Just like Goliath didn't understand who he was dealing with. God's true anointed king, the promised descendant of David, the good shepherd of the sheep would never stop trusting his father. Jesus would resist temptation. And unlike David, Jesus would never sin. And then perhaps thought, and then perhaps Satan thought that when Jesus died, that that was some sort of victory, but no, that was also part of God's plan. Jesus' death was part of God's good plan to pay for our sins, to buy us out of slavery. And then Jesus rose again from the dead, showing that he was victorious over sin and death. Now Jesus reigns at the right hand of God the Father and will one day return to judge the world. As powerful as Goliath may have seemed to be to the Israelite army, Goliath never stood a chance against the living God. As powerful as Satan may have seemed to be at times during Jesus' ministry, Satan never stood a chance against the living God. When we remember all the reasons that we have not to fear, not only is it good for us to remember what God has done in our own lives, but even more important is to remember what King Jesus has done for us. There may be times when we don't remember or have blurry memories of how God has worked in our own lives. But we must always return to the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection that makes a way for us to be saved. So if you're hearing and not a Christian today, I must urge you to repent, to turn away from your sins, and to believe, to trust in Jesus. Because Jesus is the rightful king of the universe, 
he deserves to be king of your life. And I or other members here would love to talk to you more about that. With Jesus as our king, we have nothing to fear. He delivered us in the past, and he can deliver us again and again. The story of David and Goliath stirs courage in us because it lifts our eyes from looking at things the way that humans normally look at things. It reminds us of how God delivers and protects his people. And ultimately, it reminds us of the victory that King Jesus has won and the victory that King Jesus will win again on that day when he returns. Let's go to him now in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are God. King Jesus, we praise you for you are God. Spirit, we praise you for you dwell among us. Father, we do pray that no matter what may trouble us or what may cause anxiety or fear, that we would look to you, that we would take courage in you, that that would spur us on to faithfulness, that that would spur us on to putting you first in our lives. Lord, would we be people who are, are jealous for your honor and for your glory? And Father, would you use us? And Father, would you continue to remind us of your faithfulness? Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.